Welcome to Deep Dive from the Japan Times. I'm Mara Bajan, filling in this week for Sean McKenna. What you're hearing is the sound of waves on a beach in a small secluded bay in Miyagi Prefecture, in Japan's northeastern Tohoku region. I spent some time in Tohoku last year reporting on the release of treated radioactive water from the Fukushima No. 1 nuclear power plant. <laughs> the voices you're hearing are those of Miku Narisawa and Futoshi Aizawa as they scour the rocks for fresh wild aonori, a type of seaweed eaten in Japan. Miku, a 24-year-old environmental advocate and PhD student at Tohoku University, and Futoshi, a third-generation seaweed producer, showed me around their local area, the coast of Higashimatsushima in Miyagi. Our encounter turned out to be much more than just an interview with two sources for an article I was writing. Though we spoke about the Fukushima incident, of course, the conversations we had went much deeper. Miku, in particular, made an impression on me. In 2021, she founded Odyssey Nature Japan, an organization that provides children with nature-based educational activities, such as fishing and farming. Then, at the end of last year, she attended the COP28 UN Climate Conference as a delegate for the Pacific Island nation of Palau. Weird, right? A young Japanese person representing Palau? Miku is unique and surprising that way, which is why we asked her to join us on the show to share what it's like being a young environmentalist in Japan and where she sees the future heading. Miku, thanks for joining us on Deep Dive. Thank you for inviting me. So you actually just got back from Hawaii yesterday. Uh, You must be pretty tired. But also, what were you actually doing there and how did it go? So I was in Hawaii for about a week. The purpose of my visit was, um, the main reason was to attend the PhD conference that was organized by the East-West Center in Hawaii. So I'm actually a PhD student at Tohoku University right now. And I'm doing some research in um, marine environmental anthropology, looking at the reciprocal relationship between oceans and also local fishermen in Higashimatsushima. But other reason that I went to Hawaii was the new program called the Tomodachi Kibo for Maui program. The purpose is to bring the high school students from islands of Maui in Hawaii who were directly affected by the Maui wildfire back in um, August last year to Japan for the rest and the physical but also psychological relief. And the program will provide high school students with a new hope and then direct the connection to the I would say big brother and the sisters um, who have survived the March 11, 2011 disaster in Japan, which also I did experience that. And back in 2011, there was the uh, program called the Rainbow Japan Kids. It's a reverse, but people in Hawaii invited the middle school students from Tohoku region who were directly affected by the tsunami to Hawaii to do kind of a leadership program, but also a relief program. And I was part of the program. So right now I'm getting ready for um, host a student for March 18 to 24, which is coming up um, next month already. So I'm pretty excited to, you know, host a student from Maui. So kind of giving back, yes, right, mm-hmm. to the people of Hawaii. 
And actually, how many of these students from Hawaii are coming? So first cohort, we have 11 students. So three male students and then eight female students from Maui. And a lot of them are from uh, Lahaina Luna High School, which also was affected by the wall of fire in Lahaina District of Maui. Wow, sounds exciting. And best of luck with the, the busy schedule. Thank you. So you've actually been to Hawaii many times. Um, you mentioned the program you participated in when you were in middle school, right? But you also went to university there. But your love for the ocean kind of runs even deeper than that, right? Because you grew up in Higashima, Tsushima. So I just want to get a sense, what was it like growing up in Higashima, Tsushima? So I was born to a rice farmer family in Higashima, Tsushima. You know, growing up, of course, rice fields, oceans, and also mountain and forests always surrounded me since I was growing up. And an ocean was a big part of it because my dad used to surf and I always, always go to the uh, ocean with him. And even when I drive up to the towns, you know, we pass the ocean by every day. So... You know, reflecting back right now, you know, I really appreciate the environment that I have, including my family, uh, the communities that I get to interact a lot since I was a child. I also live in Higashimatsuma right now after living in abroad. After I came back a couple of years ago, I realized that how rich environments that I had and I really appreciate the environment. That's fantastic. You know, as someone who actually grew up in a city, I'm going to say I'm a little jealous, you know, to have grown up just surrounded by nature, both mountains and the ocean. But then looking at your life journey, you grew up in this lovely place, but this was completely transformed on March 11, 2011. So just to remind listeners, that day, the coast of Tohoku was hit by a magnitude 9 earthquake that caused a tsunami that took the lives of 20,000 people and of course caused the Fukushima nuclear disaster. So I wasn't actually in Japan at that time, but since living here, I've really come to understand that this was a turning point. Like there's a pre-2011 and a post-2011 era, and you, Miku, know that more than anybody else. So how old were you at the time of the disaster, and what do you remember about that day? The day that the earthquake happened, I was at the elementary school. We were, you know, getting ready to go back home um, after the class around, you know, 2.30. Then the earthquake happened and then I was in the classroom with teachers and the classmates. And, you know, we couldn't really stand up. So we had to hide um, under the table, the desk. But all the table chairs were falling down. A lot of classmates were also crying because... The noise was something that we never heard of. It was loud. Um, then after the earthquake, we evacuated to the third floor of the elementary school because at the time, the tsunami alert was already issued. There was a lot of you know loud alerts in the community so that I could see from the third floor of the elementary school that people were evacuating to our building. Some of them were driving up to the mountains. I could see that from the building and my sister was still second grade at the time, so she was also in the building. Um, and my mother came to pick us up. And when she arrived at school, the water came to first floor. So at the time, we couldn't really 
go back to home. But also it was getting dark, so we didn't know what's really happening outside of the building. So, you know, my mother, sister, and I stayed at school for the night and also the next day. And the next morning, we weren't sure the car, the, my mother's car is going to work or not because, you know, of course, the water damaged the car. But the car worked, so we decided to go to my grandparents' house, which is was already in mountain side, so it was safe. And my father and my aunties and grandparents evacuated to my grandparents' house, so they were all safe. Because, you know, my grandparents are rice farmers, we had enough food. We invited some of my friends' family who didn't have a home because their house was washed away. So we lived with around 15 people together for the next two weeks. But two days, three days after the tsunami, I realized that our house was also washed away. That my parents told me that, you know, Miku, we don't have a house anymore. So we have to live with grandparents for now. Um, and at the time that I realized that, okay, I think I lost everything that I had in my house. Of, of course, the photos that we had uh, since I was baby with my family. And also, you know, everything that I had, even clothes. So then after living at my grandparents' house, we moved to the temporary housing, which was built by the government. And then we lived there for next two years, three years and my family and I moved to the new house, which uh, we built after the tsunami. Where did you build the house? We built in the close to the place that we used to live. We decided to still live in Higashimatsushima because I think we are so attached to the place that we were born and raised. Right. So that was the situation that was after the tsunami and the earthquake. But also, of course, the issues with Fukushima nuclear disaster was always the big part of the conversations in my family that are we really safe, you know, playing in outside, being an outside. But, you know, I was still at 12 years old, so I really didn't know what was happening around my outside space. I wasn't really paying attention until I went to abroad after the tsunami. The first time that I went to abroad was 2012. So just one year yeah. after the disaster. Mm -hmm. Okay. So the Bulgaria government invited the middle school students uh, from Tohoku regions, especially Higashi Matsushima. So the purpose of, of course, was to um, provide a new environment for the students. It was only two weeks, but we get to do a cultural exchange program. Uh, we did a lot of presentation about our experience to the um, students in Bulgaria. And I was able to be part of the Rainbow Japan Kids, which I explained earlier. So you went to Hawaii, yes. right, when you were in middle school? Yeah, I went to Hawaii in 2013 or 14, I think. So then I got to meet a lot of local kids there. And because of the connections, um, after living in France for high school, I decided to go to a University of Hawaii at Manoa to study the peace and the conflict resolutions. So... When I was a graduate student, of course, I had a lot of class and I had a lot of, you know, community activity to learn about the relationship between people and the natures through the perspective of the peace studies. Like, how do we coexist with the nature as a human being? So Hawaii really taught me the concept. Wow. Living in Hawaii really helped me to you know, motivate myself and pursue the environmental education that I'm doing right now back in home. Miku, thank you, first of all, for sharing your story. It sounds 
like you went through hell in a way, but at the same time, you kind of came out of it stronger, it seems. And also this desire to explore the world and see what else is out there. Clearly, what happened in 2011 had a huge impact on on your life story, basically, on your journey. I get the impression, and correct me here if I'm wrong, that, you know, that very traumatic experience really profoundly changed you as a person. Yes. So I think, you know, experience the disaster back in 2011 really shaped my identity, mm. who I am right now. A lot of my classmates lost their family, lost their houses, and I lost some of my friends too. We were mentally, physically exhausted. We were still at 12, 13. So, so we weren't yeah, ready for that kind of new environment or the new forced uh, environment that we had. But because I did experience that, the way that I see the nature changed. Of course, living in Japan, we always have to experience the natural disaster, even mm-hmm. from now on, whether if it's typhoon, you know, flood, um, more earthquake and a tsunami. Right. But when I think about that, I think tsunami and the earthquake back in 2011 was just part of the life cycle of the nature. Mm. So that's how I got to understand that, okay, like other you know environmental issues, it's just part of our life when we live with the nature, when we live with the natural environment. That's also, I think, shaped my identity right now as I do research in environmental studies, but also being involved with the community through environmental education. So as I mentioned earlier, I first met you when I was reporting on the Fukushima number one power plant cleanup. Back then, there's something that you said to me that really kind of stuck with me. You said, we're aware that the wastewater issue isn't a simple one, but it's more important to focus on environmental justice. Now, I took that to mean that you and those around you in your community have kind of gone beyond what happened in 2011. And that's true because you created Odyssey Nature Japan, an organization that provides children with nature-based educational activities. How did the idea for this organization, Odyssey, come about? And what motivated you to bring environmental education to local children? So growing up, I was fortunate to have a, a lot of quality time and the interactions with the local fishermen, including Yasu. Um, That's so, Yasuhiro Otomo, yes. right? So he's the third generation of fishermen. I've known Yasu since I was 12 or 13, right after the tsunami. And he being kind of the mentor for me. Oh. And I knew that, you know, he had a quite great skills and the sense to read the oceans, to sense the natures as a fisherman. So going back, but um, I was living in Hawaii back in 2020 and the COVID happened and I had to come back home. Um, And when I came back to my community back in 2021, I didn't know that our community and town has so beautiful nature. And I think I must have missed that. Mm. Maybe I just didn't see the way that I see it right now. So, so you kind of appreciated it right. again. Yeah. Okay. So I had a lot of appreciation to the nature again. 
and you know interacting with the local fishermen, including Yasu and the other、uh, fishermen who is the seaweed farmers, Hutoshi Aizawa.、Um, they always taught me that you know the climate change is real. You know they always talk to me, Miku. Our oceans is changing. This is real. There's less fish right now, and also living in Hawaii, those conversation about the environmental issues, climate change, was always you know around me and、right. around the university and the community in Hawaii. And I, when I came back to my community, hearing about the fears towards the futures and environment from the local fishermen, and I thought that maybe it's the time that I give back to the community through、mm. educations. When we think about the future in ten years, twenty years from now, who's gonna be in the center of the society? I think that's the children, right? And when we tackle those environmental issues in the futures, you know, having those mindsets and the perspective, knowledge, everything that would require to really deeply understand the nature and the environment, I think those local fishermen can teach. And share with the kids. Right. That's something that I was. That was a starting point of establishing Odyssey. And I asked Yasu, like, would you be interested in doing education program with me? He was like, Of course, let's do that. When these children, when these people participate in Odyssey's activities, what do they actually do? And what do you think they get out of the experience? So at Odyssey Nature Japan, we have program called Sato Umi. So sato means land, and the umi is oceans. So Hutoshi always talked to me that ocean and land are interconnected.、Right. That if you want a good oceans, we also have to see and take care of the land where we live, including mountain and a forest. And I think that concept is something that we really need to focus on from now. That when we see the oceans, you know, we recognize the presence of oceans. But we get all the nutrients and everything from the lands, including mountain and forest. So we are also teaching the kids the concept through the real experience. So when we have the lands program, we depend on the season. The kids will plant the rice and also get go to、uh, explore the mountain with the local fishermen and myself.、Uh, we have a lot of、uh, program to develop their critical thinking. Meaning that, for example, when we have an ocean program, kids get to go the oceans by fishing boats. And basically, what we do is that after the self check in, you know, asking how are they doing, what are the motivations, you know, what do they expect today.、Um, and after that, we always have a、um, activity called silent sketch. So in the silent sketch, we give five minutes silence, silent time to the kids. And they have to observe the even little movements or little change up of the nature, whether if it's winds, you know, what direction does wind blow, you know, where's the sun right now.、Mm-hmm. Even those little、um, changes is something that they need to kind of focus and face with the nature. They can express what they observed by sentence or the drawing or、mm-hmm. pictures. And after that, you know, we go explore the mountain. We do have farming activities, and in the oceans, we they go fishing. But you know, it really depends on them. We always ask, "What do you want to do today?" <laughs> you know, some of the kids just like to drawing in the nature. So 
you know, they draw the picture for like three hours, four hours. That's okay. <laughs> But other than that, they also, you know, harvest the vegetables and they catch a fish and they make own lunch for the day. Oh, wow. And, you know, to give you an example, in the ocean program, let's say that if the student, ca- you know, catch the fish, let's say sardine, and I always ask them, what kind of ocean environments does one single sardine can survive in next 10 years? Then, also, you know, of course, they have to think about You know, what do they need to survive? You know, if it's nutrient, plankton, or the no plastic oceans, right? That's the, up to them. But I think those kind of critical thinking that is really needed for the student, especially in Japan. So, the one of the reasons that I left Japan is that, you know, I think growing up in Japan, elementary school or middle school, I wasn't really had the time to really develop my thinking skills、mm-hmm. in the way that critical thinking skills. When they grow up and they work in the society, you know, it's really important that they think themselves what they want to do in the future or what they want to contribute to society or how they want to live. They have to think first.、Right. And、um, not only the environmental education perspective, but we heavily focus on to develop their independence and self confidence. So basically, just allowing them to be who they are、yes. kind of freely、mm-hmm. and then. Allowing them to shape、right. whatever experience、yep. they、mm-hmm. want to have.、Mm-hmm. You mentioned you work with Futoshi Aizawa. He cultivates and harvests fresh seaweed and makes products like dried seaweed. So, for example, there's a shop in Matsushima, in Matsushima town, that sells these giant senbei crackers that are wrapped in Futoshi's dried seaweed. And they're absolutely sublime. I highly recommend them. Beyond sharing great food together, you and Futoshi, apart from you know, doing your activities with Odyssey in your local area, you also travel a lot around Japan and you give talks about sustainable food and ocean conservation. Is that correct? Yes,、yeah, so、we do. We do a lot of collaborative work with Futoshi and myself. So, Futoshi is the third generation of seaweed farmers in Higashi Matsushima. And I think he has really A quite critical perspective compared to other fishermen that I know. So he sees the environment as one、um, interconnected community. As a seaweed farmer, he deals with the ocean every day. When we deal with those environmental issues, he, as a producer who produces the food, but we also need to really develop the understanding of what is happening as a consumer side. Right. So, we give a lot of、um, workshop and also we lecture at the universities together, not only in Japan, but we also teach in abroad. Wow. So, we are also doing a lot of、um, seaweed cultivation projects in abroad right now in order to raise you know, the important aspects of seaweed and what could seaweed cultivations contribute to the climate change. So, you mentioned the role of seaweed in the context of climate change. Seaweed actually absorbs a lot of、uh, carbon, right? So, there's this very strong connection between the oceans and the issue of climate change. And so, your work as an environmentalist has been recognized by the government of Palau because you were actually invited 
by the president of Palau to be part of their ocean delegation at COP28, which happened in Dubai at the end of last year. So what does an ocean delegate actually do? Like, what you know, why were you at COP28? What were you trying to achieve at the conference? So... As you mentioned, I was fortunate to be part of the delegation of Republic of Palau at COP28 last year. So Palau is a small island nation uh, located in the Western Pacific Oceans. Um, it is consists around um, 340 corals um, and a volcanic islands. And Palau itself, I think populations is around 20,000 right now. Mm. So it's really small island nation. Tiny, yeah. tiny. <laughs> And the president always referred to Palau as an ocean state. And I had an opportunity to be part of the delegations as an ocean advisor at the COP28. And my role was to support the delegations, especially ocean team. So the part of, you know, the negotiations and the conversation that I got to um, join and participate at the COP28 is that, you know, I heard a lot of voice and the perspective that from other delegations, the ocean wasn't the center of the conversation at COP28. Mm. But when we look at the global stock take. So the global stock take is this kind of assessment in terms of what countries have promised they'll yes. do in terms mm-hmm. of emissions reductions and how close or far, that brings us to the goals of the Paris Agreement to reduce carbon emissions and limit uh, global temperature rise to 1.5 degrees Celsius by the end of the century. Sorry, that was a very long explanation of the global <laughs> stock take, but there's a there's a lot there. Sorry, please. You know, ocean was part of the global stock take in a way that, you know, we need to protect the marine ecosystem from right. now on that we did make into the global stock take, but a lot of people say that that wasn't enough. Okay. I believe about a third of the CO2 emitted uh, is absorbed by the oceans. So they have like a very direct impact mm. on the amount of emissions, carbon emissions in our atmosphere. And, you know, what I think is interesting about you, Miku, is that you see these issues from a much deeper perspective than I think maybe many people do. You know, many people, they hear like, clean oceans, ocean conservation, and they mainly think about plastic pollution in the sea, which is obviously a huge issue, but it's actually something that is part of a much broader effort that we need to make to improve the health of our oceans. And so what you're doing, obviously you participated in COP, but you're also trying to create this connection between people So with Odyssey, you're connecting children and even adults with people like Yasu, the fisherman, and Futoshi, the seaweed producer. And, you know, you meet all these people who come from other island nations, like from the Pacific Islands. And of course, you've spent time in Hawaii. So what have you learned from people whose livelihoods and even whose culture and identity depends on the sea? We can't really separate humans and the oceans or society and the oceans. Mm. It's going to directly impact somehow. Mm-hmm. It's attached to our identity. It's our, attached to our cultures. It's attached to our society, economy. Mm-hmm. So I learned that the people in Hawaii, they see the ocean as a one canoe. Hmm. On the canoe, they have to help each other in order to navigate themselves. Right. 
and they have to share the space peacefully and respectfully. Right. And focusing on Japan, because obviously, you know, Japan is an archipelago. It has a very long coastline, many islands. So everything you're talking about is super important when it comes to Japan. So how do you see Japan in terms of, is it doing well when it comes to ocean conservation? Or what are some areas of improvement that you see? Yeah. So as a Japan, we heavily focus on the fishing industries. Mm. And as I you know, interact with the local fishermen back in Higashi Matsushima. They always talk about the environmental issues. You know, they can't really catch a fish. They can't really cultivate a seaweed or oysters because ocean is getting unhealthy, meaning that less plankton, less oxygen, less nutrient. Mm-hmm. And I see a lot of projects and activity saying that let's clean up our oceans. Right. Let's pick up the plastic. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, I think that's one thing that we also need to focus, that we need to clean up the oceans. But when you came to Higashi Matsushima and when you look at the oceans, you know, the our oceans color was kind of greenish, mm. like a dark, you know, blue. But when you go to Okinawa, the water is much clearer. Right. And it's just because the each ocean has different roles because of um, depending on the geogra- geographical locations. Mm. So in Higashi Matsushima, we have two rivers which brings the, all the nutrients coming to the oceans. And we are located in the area where two currents meet together. Mm. One is coming down from Russia, the colder currents, and other currents coming up from Philippine Okinawa, the much warmer currents. Those two currents merge together. That also creates a rich ocean environments for the ecosystem. But when you look at Okinawa, the warmer currents, they bring less nutrients. So without the plankton and nutrients, of course, the water get much clearer. Mm-hmm. And that's always, you know, Hutoshi always saying that. And each ocean has a different roles. So I think it's a really time for Japan to really think what is really right thing to do with the oceans. Like, how do we deal and how do we take care of the oceans? I hope, you know, the leaders of Japan are listening to this podcast and that they could get your message. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> um, and with that, Miku, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me. My thanks again to Miku Narisawa for joining us on Deep Dive this week. Sean McKenna is here with me now. Hey. Sean, thanks for letting me host this week. Well, thank you for giving me a week off. You owe me one. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I'm amazed that someone like Miku can go through such a harrowing experience like a tsunami. And then rather than retreat from the ocean, she kind of made it her goal to protect it. Yeah. And something I took away from the discussion is that ocean conservation, climate change, and even healthy mountains and forests are all interconnected issues. Yeah. How can we learn more about the initiatives Miku's involved in? So you can find out more at odysseynaturejapan.com and on Instagram at odysseynaturejapan. We'll put the links in the show notes. Cool. Well, in other environment-related news, last year, Japan and the rest of the world, really, experienced record-breaking temperatures, and the trend looks likely to continue this year. So make sure you clean your air conditioners before the spring, Mara. (laughs) (laughs) February is already seeing record highs across Japan, and experts believe 2024 is going to be the hottest year in the country's history. 
that's even hotter than last year. Oh, no. Uh, so Eric Margolis has written about it for our environment section, Our Planet. You can find that at japantimes.co.jp or click on a link in the show notes. Deep Dive from the Japan Times is produced by Dave Cortez. Our outgoing music is by Oscar Boyd. And our theme music is by the Japanese musician 4L. Your host for this week has been Mara Budjin. I'm Sean McKenna. Potsukare-sama. Potsukare-sama. Potsukare-sama.